I will remind you if you would like during this uh, time of ministry of the Word, as we're seated in our place, you're welcome to take a little break from the mask. Um, I also want to invite you to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12 and 13. We are continuing to make our way through Zechariah, and as we've gone through Zechariah, we have come to uh, varying time horizons in the prophetic vision. So we come to these chapters, Zechariah, he speaks this word of prophecy, looks with, with one eye towards Jesus' death and resurrection and with another eye to His second coming. And so He'll capture that time period looking to Jesus' sacrifice and the time moving forward. Now, as we come to this oracle which covers two chapters, uh, when we think about it in its entirety, it will speak of God's judgment on His enemies. It will speak of His cleansing of His people. It will speak of His removal of the false prophets. And throughout, it will speak of the Lord's mighty work of recreation. If you have not already done so, I want to encourage you to take the time to read these two chapters in their entirety. Uh, This morning, as we are together, we'll focus our attention on two portions of this scripture. Uh, They are listed for you in your bulletin. Before we read them, let's go to the Lord, asking for His blessing as we turn to His Word. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this text, I ask that You would give us the grace of Your presence, that You would, by the power of Your Spirit, open our hearts to receive this Word. It's a word of conviction and a word of comfort. And I pray that Your Spirit would bring both. Would You do this for Your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, Amen. Friends, beginning with Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I read to you the inerrant and infallible Word of God. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him. As one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over Him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And now picking back up in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you. Do you hate your sin? How's that for coming out of the gate swinging? Do you hate your sin? Once upon a time, as I was preparing for ministry, I was serving in another church in another state as an intern under a couple of mentors. My uh, oldest son, at the time, our kids were very young, and my oldest son was going through a communicants class and preparing to join the church. Uh, coming to the point of, of taking on this faith uh, as his own. And he met with the pastors, uh, and they later shared with me some of the conversation. As they shared with me what they had talked about, they, they told me that they had asked my young son, do you hate your sin?" I'll confess that it shocked me a bit that they would have asked that question for a child. It seemed a bit harsh. But the more I thought about it, the more I pondered, I realized that it was the precise question that needed to be asked because that question unfolded in that moment a beautiful pastoral conversation between pastor and child. It can do and should do the same for us. So do you hate your sin? The people in our text, the people that Zechariah prophesied about hated their sin. It captures it as it speaks of their mourning. This morning that they experienced, it was more than a slight sadness over sin. They mourned as if mourning the loss of their only child. Now, I've never lost a child, but some of you have. And I can't begin to imagine the pain of that loss or to attempt to compare it to anything, but the Word of God here does just that. And in comparing it, it speaks of a mourning that is real, a mourning that is earnest, and a mourning that is life-changing. That's how the text that we've just read describes the mourning that the people in Jerusalem 
experienced. But here's the question. What were they mourning? Verse 10 tells us what they were mourning. When they look on me, on Him whom they have pierced. In other words, when they look upon the pierced One. John chapter 19, verse 37 makes it explicitly clear that the One whom they pierced was Jesus Christ. Zechariah is prophesying of the day of Jesus' crucifixion. But the One whom they pierced, they... He is not speaking of the Roman soldiers who actually did the physical piercing to look on Him as He describes in this Word. It describes uh, a faith. It has the connotation of looking on Him in faith. To look on Him and to, be peer, uh, to, be, and to mourn over piercing Him is to realize as we look on Jesus in faith that it was our sin that sent Him to the cross. As the people in Jerusalem mourned Jesus, they were mourning the fact that they themselves had done the piercing by virtue of their sin. This mourning is a grief over their own sin. And seeing it so clearly displayed with Jesus on the cross, The people came to hate their sin, but let's take this one step further for them and for us. Why? Why did they hate their sin? The why is a different question than the what. Because the why gets to the very heart of the matter. Why do you hate your sin? There's a variety of reasons why we hate our sin. So maybe let's take a bit of a illustrative situation that I believe you have enough wisdom to apply to a variety of different contexts. Imagine for yourself a conversation where you talk with someone else about someone else. Now, some might call that gossip. You might cloak it with some other description. But imagine as you're talking with this person about someone else, you say some hurtful things. Now, in this imaginative scenario, let's continue to imagine that the person whom you talked about found out what you had said. They found out the hurtful things you said and in you learning about this whole scenario, you experience the sting of guilt. That sting of guilt is a sense of mourning, even a sense of grief. But now again we ask the question, why? For some of us, We mourn because they heard what we said. 
And we want to make it all better by letting them know, reassuring them, hey, that's not really who I am. It was a little slip of the tongue. And what are we mourning when we do that? When we try and convince them that that's not really me, we're mourning our reputation. We're mourning what other people are thinking about us. That's one why behind our mourning of sin. We're mourning the fact that we got caught. Alternatively, there's a different kind of mourning. Rather than trying to excuse it away by saying that's not really who I am, there is a mourning that realizes the depths of our hearts have been exposed and that in fact is who I am. That underneath my words is a deep sense of need to be affirmed by someone else. A sense of unbelief in what the Lord God says about me in the Gospel. A rejection of God's holiness. There is a realization that that is who I am. And that is a very different kind of mourning. It is a mourning of the reality of sin in my own heart. Realizing that in that moment, and possibly in many moments, my focus is not on the glory or the holiness of God, but on self. And that realization causes us to mourn. In fact, to hate our sin. The first scenario that I presented to you, that's a, that's a self-centered, worldly grief. The second, oh, it's a godly grief. We wrote about it in the, in the midweek devotion this week, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul speaks of this, saying that for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death because worldly grief has nothing whatsoever to do with the Lord. It is a grief centered on me that does not point me to Jesus. And the result of that is this this inward conviction to try and do better the next time. And we all know how that works out. But we know the sting of conviction. Why do we know it? Let's be honest. Let's be honest that when we try and convince others that that sin is not the real me, or maybe even trying to convince myself that that is not the real me, but that is not the mourning that we read of in this passage. That is it's a worldly grief. Zechariah exposes it. Exposes it, moving us towards a godly grief. But the next question then is, is who experiences this godly grief? The short answer is not everyone will experience godly grief. But we need to unpack that short answer. There is a particular heresy that few of us would verbally agree with, but many of us, 
uh, in some subtle way, will live by. Is the heresy of universalism. Universalists believe that in the end, all will be saved. In the end, none will be relegated to the judgment of hell. Now, universalists come in, in different uh, stripes and colors. and For some, they come to this universalist belief because they have a disregard of sin. They just don't believe in sin. Some are universalists because they, if you can believe this, uh, over-apply the work of Jesus, saying that Jesus died for all regardless of their heart condition, regardless of their faith in Him. Yet there are others who are universalists because they just don't like the notion of a God who would judge. Whatever the reasoning for the universalism, every one of the universalists diminish the holiness of God. We disregard the God of justice. The text tells us clearly that our God is holy. The text tells us clearly that our God is a God who will bring justice. And the text also tells us that our God is a God who is gracious and merciful. Though He will bring judgment, our God, because He is gracious and merciful out of His own character and for His own glory has chosen to redeem a remnant. But who is this remnant? In the broader section of Scripture, the whole of chapters 12 and 13, and even we see it a little bit in the portion I have read, there's there's much talk of Jerusalem and Judah. So what do we do with that? Is the remnant a factor of geography? Is the remnant a factor of zip code? If that were the case, then the answer to our sin would be to pack our bags and move. And if we lived within the city limits of Jerusalem, we would be saved. Problem solved. No, that is not how the Lord has chosen this remnant. Nor is the remnant merely a factor of our family tree. If that were the case, few, if any of us, would have hope. No, the remnant is not chosen by geography or zip code or family tree, but we see it in a surprising place in this text. We see the mark of the remnant. And the mark of the remnant that this passage points us to is the very presence of this godly grief. This godly grief is part of the Lord's drawing to Himself a people. And all who are His will experience this grief. This godly grief. The text actually captures that in 
creative way. Uh, Listing for us several categories of those who mourn. First, it speaks to a a corporate mourning. That's what it was referring to when it spoke of the mourning for Hadad-Rimon on the plain of Megiddo. Most uh, commentators believe that that is referring to the mourning that the nation of Judah uh, experienced and expressed when the godly king Josiah was killed in battle. There's a corporate grief that takes place over our sin. But beyond the corporate grief, this grief must be experienced by each and every individual who is called by God. Again, it captures it in a creative way. Speaking of the husbands and the wives... The husband must experience this godly grief and the wife must experience the godly grief. And the leaders must experience it. That's what we saw in the the mention of the, the kingly line and the priestly line. The kingly line being David and his son Nathan. The priestly line, Levi and his son Shemiah. The leadership, husband and wife, must experience this godly grief. But then all the families, all the people called by God will experience this godly grief. But how? How is this a grace? If you pay attention to titles. I titled this sermon The Grace of Godly Grief. How is this grief a grace? Verse 10 gives us some indication as Zechariah prophesied of a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Speaking of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We don't by nature come to a godly grief. By nature we experience a worldly grief for our own reputation. But the gift of God is this godly grief through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He opens our eyes to see the holiness of God, the darkness of our sin, and to draw out from us this grief and hatred of our sin. It is a mark of the Holy Spirit work of regeneration so that the godly grief flows from a heart of true repentance. And as a grace, it leads to repentance unto life. The New Testament would speak of this repentance unto life. What is repentance unto life? Actually, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechism speak so beautifully and clearly to repentance unto life, describing it this way, repentance unto life is repentance leading to life that is a saving grace by which a sinner, having truly realized his sin and grasped the mercy of God in Christ, turns away from his sin with this godly grief and hatred of the sin and turns to God with full resolve and effort after new obedience. This godly grief is not the Lord holding us down, wiping our nose in the sin, but it's Him releasing us from it. Repentance is not to bring shame and guilt. Repentance is meant to turn our focus away from the filth of sin and to the glory and beauty of our Savior. This is the grace of godly grief. 
that only comes through the the eye-opening, heart-opening work of the Holy Spirit. So through godly grief, the Lord brings His beloved to the point where we can cling to hope. So where is this hope for those who grieve? Before we get to the object of hope, we need to understand that hope is clearly and beautifully pointed out to us in this text. We need to embrace the fact that there is hope and that hope is the reason that the Lord brings us through godly grief. Now that's an important point because while some of us struggle with differentiating between worldly grief and godly grief, for some of us that's our struggle with this grief. But for others, there is a very different struggle. We get stuck in grief. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a powerful British preacher used mightily of the Lord in the last century. As he preached in the pulpits throughout England. And part of the fruit of his, uh, his study of the Word and his pastoral ministry was a book that he wrote uh, titled Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. Now, maybe for some of you, just that very title piques your interest because you know in ways that you may not even be able to articulate this notion of spiritual depression. You know what's behind it, being stuck in grief. When we're stuck in grief, we stay there and we practically miss the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore we are robbed of the joy and the intimacy that is to be ours in Him. Lord Jones understood that. And he wrote about it saying that one of the primary reasons why we get stuck in grief, why we experience spiritual depression is that we only listen to ourselves. We only listen to the reality of our sin, that it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross, but we stay there. Several months ago, I had driven down to Birmingham to, uh, for an appointment, and, and on my way back, I uh, received a text message. Now, it was one of those better moments where I was smart enough not to drive and text and so I pulled in to um, a church, uh, actually, a church parking lot, so that I could put the car in park and then deal with this message I needed to deal with. The only problem is, after I finished sending my text, I, I tried to put the car in reverse to back up, and nothing happened. <laughs> the transmission was stuck. And I kept trying to pull harder. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So I kept doing the thing that I had been doing. And it wasn't working. The transmission was stuck and my car wasn't going anywhere. 
I had to call for help. I had to look for someone outside of myself. Friends, the the Word of God takes us to godly grief, but it does not stop there. It takes us outside of ourselves. Lloyd-Jones captured that in his book by saying, don't simply listen to yourself, but in listening to yourself, speak to yourself. Speak the truth of Jesus. Now, praise the Lord, that's exactly what this text does for us. We go outside of ourselves. We do something different by listening, not to ourselves, but to the Word of God. So that we can unstuck the transmission of our heart. And we see it in 13 chapter 1. On that day, the day of godly mourning. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In Ezekiel, chapter 36, a a passage that I've spoken uh, to you frequently about, but in Ezekiel 36.25, the Lord prophesies a day of cleansing by saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That sprinkling that Ezekiel 36 speaks of looks back on the work of the priests who would take a hyssop branch and dip it in the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. In fact, when Moses read the law before the people, he took the hyssop branch and dipped it in the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled the people with the blood. That is the picture of the sprinkling we have in Ezekiel 36. But now, it's not sprinkling that is pointing to, but a fountain. A super abounding, never ending, flooding portion of grace that Jesus would declare is coming from Him as He is the fountain of living water. And then ultimately in Revelation 22, we see this fountain flowing from underneath the throne of God. This fountain that Zechariah 13 points us to is the, is the fountain of blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins, shed for the forgiveness of God's beloved, freely given to all who grieve with a godly grief over their sin. And it wipes away the darkness of spiritual depression, leading us into a renewed joy and intimacy in Christ. But how? How is that fountain opened? We go to Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword. O sword of justice. The Lord God Almighty calls the sword of justice to be awakened against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you see? Just don't miss this. The Father intentionally strikes the one next to Him. 
The Father intentionally strikes Jesus with the sword of justice. You see, it is not just the people who pierced Jesus by their sin. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of the Father to crush Him, to put Him to grief so that His soul might make an offering for our guilt. How was the fountain open? The Lord, our God, struck the Savior with the sword of His justice in our stead. In our stead. That is what Zechariah 13 is telling us. And yes, when the shepherd was struck, the sheep are scattered. It was true of the disciples on the night of Jesus' betrayal. The, the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and they fled. And it is true of us, of you and of me. Every time we deal with temptation, we flee from the shepherd. But, but this Holy Spirit given godly grief is a grace that the Lord sends in order to bring us back. It is part of the refining fire that Zechariah 13 would point to. And so 13.9 tells us what to do when we experience this grief. When my car was stuck in park and I had no clue what to do, I had to call out for help. 13.9 tells us, stuck in godly grief, you cannot save yourself. And at that point, what do you do? You call out. You cry out. They will call upon My name. This calling upon the name of the Lord is a call for rescue. It is a call for forgiveness. It is a call for renewal. It is a call to return to intimacy. And in seeing... Our sin. In grieving over our sin, the Lord invites us to call upon Him. And when we do, when we call upon His name, do not miss what comes next. The Lord claims us. He claims us as His own. Why do we get stuck in spiritual depression? Because in that moment of grief, how do you feel? You feel low. You feel unworthy. You feel unloved and unlovable. You feel unwanted. But see what the Word tells us. That God has chosen to love His own. And in that moment, He declares over His own mind. Because from the, before the beginning of time, the Lord God has chosen to love the remnant. This is the context into which we are refined. A context of covenantal love and affection. The context of covenantal commitment that gives us a freedom to acknowledge our sin and grief. And in that moment, we are released from our self-focus and brought into a worshipful focus. Some of you have no doubt seen 
Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of Christ. It was Gibson's attempt to graphically, vividly portray Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his beating, his death. He did so in an attempt to bring before us the weight of Jesus' loving sacrifice on our behalf. What you may not know is that Gibson made a cameo appearance in that film. Not his face, his hands. Gibson, who's a Christian, made the film because he had come to see and to grieve his own sin. Gibson understood it was his sin that sent Jesus to the cross, that he, in fact, had pierced Jesus. And so acknowledging his sin and his Savior in the film, his hands portrayed the Roman soldier who would nail the nails in Jesus' hands. Now, I don't know all that was going through Gibson's heart as he he did this. I don't know if for him this was an over-the-top expression of penance or if it was an acknowledgement of godly grief that led to worship. But I do know this, that godly grief is a gift of grace given to us by the Holy Spirit and meant to turn our focus off of self and on to Jesus. Our godly grief is meant to drive us to the cross of Christ and there to let go of our sin so that we, the ones who have pierced Jesus, might worship. Do you hate your sin? Why do you hate your sin? Beloved, listen to your heart and then respond to Jesus. Father, Your Word is vivid. Your Word brings conviction, but Your Word brings comfort. And I pray that for all who are here this morning, all who are listening that that conviction would lead to the comfort of Christ so that you might be glorified. Do this, I pray, for everyone here listening this day. In Christ's name, amen.